Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Today, you might get confused as we go through this, but we're going to talk about the goodness of the Lord. So waiting on the Lord in times of difficulty. This is what we're going to talk about. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 24, that'd be fabulous. Keep on forgetting that you people don't turn to anything. You just turn it on and then access the app. Sorry about that. Anyway, so here we go. Ah, there we are. So we, we will find ourselves in 2 Kings 6, 24 in a very, I'm going to call it difficult situation. Difficult may be a little bit of an understatement, but there it is. I'll set the stage. We're all in Samaria. Joram is the king of Israel at this point. We are in the divided kingdom. Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has surrounded Samaria, and we are starving is what's happening. We're wasting away slowly over time. This is kind of the mode of attacking and taking over cities during this time in history. And uh, dare I say, it's bad. Uh, Yep, life is difficult. How difficult, you ask? I'm glad you asked that question. Look at verse 25. The famine in Samaria is so great that they're selling donkey's heads for 80 shekels. And they're selling, hold on, wait for it, a cab of dove's dung for five shekels. Evidently, this is desirable to have, and thus you'll pay for it. Whatever. Um, Again, so just to reiterate, it's bad. Um, There we go. Sorry. Got to get used to it. All right. So it's not that it's bad, but it gets worse. I don't know if you know if it can get worse or not, but here's the scene. So King Joram is walking around. Samaria, and he meets this woman, and she's very upset and says, help me, basically. We're in 26 and 27, if you want to look there. And she said, he said, what's the matter? What can I do? And she says in 28, this woman said to me, give your son that we may, we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. If you don't believe me, it's in 26, the back half. I'm sorry, I take that back. It's in 28, the back half of 28. Verse 29, so she's telling the king still, she's in a conversation with Joram. So we boiled my son and ate him. I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. And she, but she has hidden her son. Well, no joke. Anyway. So again, I go back to the whole thing is, is that we're talking about what today? The goodness of the Lord in difficult situations. Now you may ask yourself, how is this the goodness of the Lord? Hold on, we'll get there. The question you may have is how did Samaria get like this? Glad you asked that question. So how did you get, how did we get here? And the question is, is First of all, in 1 Kings 12, you don't have to turn there, but you can, if you're taking notes, I have no idea if you are not, write it down, 1 Kings 12. So in 1 Kings 12, that is when Solomon has died, 
and Rehoboam the first has taken over the king, right? And so the leaders of Israel come to him and say, hey, are you going to be easier than your dad or worse? And he, you know, does his thing and basically comes back and tells them we're going to be worse. And so they say, we're out. And so that is exactly when the kingdom divided. So you have a political separation in Israel at this time. There's no religious, but there's political. The problem is, is that my guy, Jeroboam the first in Israel does something that may be politically savvy but it, according to God, this is the most awful thing you can do. He says, if we allow worship of the God in, of Israel in Judah to happen, our people's hearts will turn to Judah and the kingdom will be united again and I will be out of power. That's a problem. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to now create religious separation in Israel. So now there's not only political separation, there's religious separation. You with me on this? And so he creates two think golden calf, Mount Sinai kind of stuff. He makes that in Israel and he puts them in two different cities and makes random people uh, priests. And here we go, cue idolatry worship in the north. And it gets really bad underneath Ahab with Baal worship. Does that make sense? So this is kind of where we are. So trusting in the Lord is not something that these people do on a regular basis. They're kind of whoever's convenient at the time kind of people. So that's where we find ourselves. Then you have the other thing. So you need to turn here. So keep your hand in the Bible here and just, it's probably about five or six pages to the left. If you go to 1 Kings 20, let me set the stage here. It's more like 10 or 15 pages to the left, not five. Or just cue your app up. Anyway, so the issue is, is that in 20, let me set the stage here. In chapter 20, you got war with Aram. It's Ben-Hadad again. This is the king of Israel at this time is Ahab, okay? In 21 through 12, so chapter 21 through 12, there's a war and Ahab is successful, is victorious. Verse 13 and, and on explains this. Then there's another war, probably a year later, we don't know what the time frame is, in verse 26 of chapter 20. Ahab is successful again. Here where's the, here's where it's a problem. He captured Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, and let him go. Because Ben-Hadad said, I'll give you back all these towns. And he said, okay, and let Ben-Hadad go. A prophet, look at the back half of chapter 20. So from 37 to 43, while I tell it to you, look at it, make sure I'm telling it right. A prophet comes on the scene, tells someone to injure him. This guy injures him in the face. He puts a, some sort of bandage on his face so the king of so Ahab can't under, recognize who he is. Ahab comes by and the prophet says, my Lord, the king, I was told to hold on to this prisoner for someone and the prisoner overpowered me, punched me in the face, you know, hit me, wounded me, and he ran off. And Ahab said, you, you, you know, you should die. It's your, your fault. And he takes the bandage off and says this. I'll read it because it's the word of the Lord. Here we go. Verse 42 of chapter 20, 1 Kings he said to him, so he is the prophet, him is Ahab, okay? So he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Fast forward later into chapter 22 and Ahab dies on the next war with Aram. Fast forward again to chapter 6 of 2 Kings. Everybody go back to 2 Kings chapter 6. And now we have Ben-Hadad surrounding Samaria. 
So if Ahab had been obedient to the Lord 15 chapters earlier, we're not talking about this right now. Does that make sense with me on this? So you say, how did this happen? This is what happens. Little side note, nothing to do with the goodness of the Lord, but the idea that you can sin in isolation and it doesn't affect anybody around you is completely false. Just want to throw that out there just for fun. It's nothing to do with the goodness of the Lord, but let me say it one more time. The idea that you can sin and it's my business and problem and don't worry about me kind of stuff is a lie. It affects a whole lot of people. Let's move on. All right, so that's the reason that we are where we are. This is the reason we are where we are. So This is kind of key. I want you to see a couple of things that I missed the first time, but uh, we'll talk about it. So when King Joram in verse 29 hears the woman that she and this other woman have agreed to boil their kids and eat them. This is how bad it is. He tears his clothes and underneath his clothes, take a look at it in verse 30. He has on sackcloth. He's so angry. Joram is so angry that he in 31 declares that he's going to chop Elisha's head off. Sends a messenger. Elisha is hanging out with the leaders of the town in 32. Tells one of the leaders, shut, you know, hold the door closed. The door's closed. The messenger comes, blah, blah, blah. Verse 33, while he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger came to him and said, behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? We've got two things that are happening. One, he's got sackcloth on, which is a sign of mourning. And number two, he's waiting on the Lord, which I will tell you is that one of the most difficult things when things are not going well. When things aren't going well, what is the natural inclination of pretty much anybody on the earth? It is to solve the problem, is it not? But a lot of times when we solve that problem, it's outside of what God wants us to do. Take, for example, the two women that are boiling their kid. I, this, there's no way... I don't know how you have that conversation. I don't know who broached the subject first. So, Sarah, I was thinking maybe we could boil your kid today and mine tomorrow. That's a great idea. I don't know. I don't even know what that looks like in Samaria, but it's bad. And these two women think that that's the answer to the problem that they're in. Does that make sense with me on this? I know that sounds stupid, but let's just take a look at that for just a second. It's the same thing that people do outside of the will of God today. Right? They're sort of boiling their kid, right? Does that make sense? Think Abraham, Sarah, you're going to have a kid. Let's throw Hagar in the situation. You with me on this one? Right? That was, ah, how brilliant was that answer? That was kind of stupid. So you think of, I have a difficult situation that I find myself in right now, and I'm going to try to use whatever resources I have to solve it. You're boiling your kid. That's what you're doing. Because you're not waiting on the Lord, and you're not waiting for his goodness and his kindness. You with me on this? Make sense? All right. So Elisha says in chapter 7, verse 1, here's where the goodness of the Lord comes. By the way, just for your information, the goodness of the Lord is best seen in a difficult or impossible situation. Rarely do you see the goodness of the Lord when things are going well. Now, I said you see. I didn't say God doesn't give you goodness when things are going well. I said rarely do we see the goodness of the Lord when things are going well. So most of the time when we are waiting on the Lord in a difficult situation, that is when the goodness of the Lord and the blessing of God falls on his people. You with me on this? Okay. So in chapter 7, verse 1, Elijah sa- Elisha sorry, says, 
this time tomorrow, so 24 hours from now, a, a measure of fine flour, one shekel, and two measures of barley, one shekel. Now, people eat flour, animals eat barley. That's what they're saying, right? That sounds crazy to a royal official in verse 2. Take a look at it. So in verse 2, the royal official says, and I'm quoting here, middle of verse 2, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And Elisha responds to him in the bottom of verse 2 and says, Then he, Elisha, said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. You won't eat of it. I'm in a difficult situation. I'm waiting on the Lord. Where does unbelief fit into that scenario? Well, if I don't believe, I'm not going to do the waiting. Hello, the two women boiling their kid or one of their kids and eating him or her. I don't know what gender it is. That's bad. So you, you look at the the goodness of the Lord, and you kind of need to th- have three elements to see the, the, the goodness of the Lord. One of them is you generally are, you're in a bad situation. Number two, there's the waiting, which is the most God-awful thing on the face of the earth to do because you're doing, in your eyes, and probably people that are looking at you, you're doing nothing. And then there's the not, the, the not succumbing to unbelief and resting on the goodness of what you know God is going to do in your life. These three things. Right? So there's the kind of the formula here that we're having. <clears throat> so what happens? It's twilight. Okay, so it's, this all happened during the daytime, twilight. The sun is setting. There's some lepers. They are in verse 3 all the way to 14. You can look at it while I tell you about it. So the lepers in verse 3 all the way to 14 are over there, and they come up with a brilliant epiphany. I don't know how many of them there are, but there's like two, at least two of them. And they say, if we stay here, guys, we're going to die. If we go into the city, we're going to die. So how about we go over to the camp of the Ar- Armenian camp? We can, they could kill us, right? But they also could do what? Let us live. So we've got a better chance of living if we go down here to the camp of Aaron. And so that's exactly what they do. They come to the first tent. Here we go, where are we? We come to the first tent. <clears throat> Eight, verse 8, they come to the first camp, the tent, and it's deserted. They go in there, they drink, they eat, they carry away the, the, the clothing. Because in 6 and 7, take a look at 6 and 7, the Lord calls the army of the Armenians to hear a sound of chariots and the sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, oh man, we better get out of here. He's hired the Hittites and the Egyptians. And so verse 7, therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left all of their tents, their horses, their donkeys, the camp, just as it was, and fled for their lives. They're gone. The end. It's over. So the lepers go there and they go and they're having a ball. They're having a party. Three, four of them. I don't know how many people. Everybody else is in Samaria starving. And so someone, it dawns on one of them. Wait a minute, guys. If we wait here until the morning and tell them, we're going to get killed. So remember the whole point of what we're doing here is to not get killed. So let's go back and tell the guard to the gate they're gone. So they do. They go up there. The guard, hey, guys, they're gone. They wake the king up and says that 
the, the nation of Aram is gone, the army is gone, and the king's like, oh, it's a trick, they're hiding. So they send out like some good horses and chariots, and they ride all the way to the Jordan River. It's about 15-ish miles from Samaria to the Jordan River, and we're not talking about flat land either. So they go there, and they find, <clears throat> verse 14, they took the two chariots with the horses, and the king sent after the army of the Armenians, saying, Go and see. Verse 15, they went after the Jordan, and behold, they all was full of clothes and equipment which the Armenians had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned to the, to the king. Right? Does that make sense? That, that's, that is the backdrop here. So again, let me just reiterate that a few 24 hours before, what were we doing? Selling donkey's heads, buying bird dung, and boiling babies. And now we're selling flour for a shekel at the, at the gate. Do you see the goodness of the Lord here? <clears throat> well, we got, the, we got the royal official, right? So the king puts the royal official, the same guy in verse 2, in charge of the gate in the morning. And I guess they wait to the morning to announce, all right, guys, they're gone, go get it. And so as he's at the gate... Verse 16, so the people went out and plundered the camp of the Armenians. Then a messenger of, a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal official, verse 17, whose hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him at the gate and he died just as the man of God said who spoke when the king came down to him. So my question is, what does unbelief do in your and my heart to the goodness of the Lord being poured out on you? Well, it stops it. It doesn't happen. So we talked about the goodness and the blessing of the Lord poured out in our lives. How does that happen? We're, we wait upon the Lord. We have faith that it's going to happen. Belief, if you will. We don't let unbelief creep in. And it, you, we understand that it usually happens in difficult times because it's easiest to see God's goodness and grace in our lives when it's not good. <clears throat> so there's the, there's the old royal official, how could this be? And there's the royal official, you'll see it, but you won't eat of it. And it's true. Pretty much the same verse in 7 is also copied and talked about in 17, 18, and 19. It, unbelief is very, very serious when it comes to the Lord. He almost takes it as an insult. You don't think I can do this? Watch and let me show you. I mean, the whole part the Red Sea, Jesus on the earth, you know, blind sea, lame walk, demons cast out, this kind of stuff. This is the goodness of the Lord. So elements, again, elements receiving the goodness of God. Goodness of the Lord comes at difficult times. Wait upon the Lord, 2 Kings 6.33. Belief in God, 2 Kings 7.2. I, just on a side note, I have some stories uh, that are kind of part of my life in the goodness of the Lord. And I'll relate them back to this. I was a missionary kid in Africa for... Five years of my life, so 80 to 85. I was a missionary kid, so from 8 to 13 years old, I was a missionary kid in, in, in Kenya. 1982, August 1st, there was a coup in the land. 
and um, the, some part of the army was trying to overthrow President Moy and didn't want him in charge of the, of the country. My family and the Cox family, there was 10 of us together, so my family was five. My brother is older than me by three years. My sister is younger than me by three years, and so it's Todd, myself, Kristen, and then my family, and then the other car was the Cox family, and they had three kids as well, so 10 of us. We roll in caravanning from Mombasa going into Nairobi, and we pull up into the first roundabout, and there is a bus, and the bus is shot up. It looks like Swiss cheese. There are bodies dead all on the ground. There's blood all over the, over the road. The bus is on fire, and you can smell, I don't, I don't know if you've ever smelt it before, but you can smell death in the air like this just happened. And I am scared to death as a 10-year-old in the backseat of the car. My version of Christianity was when you do what God tells you to do, he, he protects you, right? So think uh, Daniel and Lion's Den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these kind of stories. Noah, you know, do what you're supposed to and God protects you kind of stuff. I had not come across the Stephen in the New Testament, you know, got killed for doing this stuff or any of the disciples that got killed for doing what they did or Paul in, in uh, Jerusalem when he got thrown into prison and then had to go to Rome and all this kind of stuff. I, none of this stuff had, I was just the kid that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, Alliance, Den, and Noah. This is my 10-year-old experience of God. And so my, I think God should protect us. And this is the first time I've come contact with maybe there isn't some sort of protection. Does that make sense? So we we stop. There's no one there except the dead people and the bus that's on fire. There's spikes across the road, so you can't, you can't go. you got to stop, get out, and move the spikes, and then go. But as soon as we stop, everybody comes out of the elephant grass, and they get in a perfect V formation. Uh, basically, uh, they can all open up on us, and they're not shooting each other. Does that make sense? If they encircled us, that would be bad. But they come into a V for it's, it's army. They come into a V formation, and they're ready. M16s. They've got 50 caliber machine guns. They've got AK-47s. By the way, this is etched, permanently burned in my mind because I thought I was going to die at that point. Difficult situation, people. And so there was an argument between a sergeant and a lieutenant of them, and I saw them screaming at each other. And they, yes, they had weapons, uh, you know, on. And the debate was, if we let them go, they could get killed. We can't guarantee their safety kind of stuff. They should go back to the airport. We didn't come from the airport. Anyway, so we go through 17 checkpoints just such as this. As we drive down the road, there are dead bodies all over the place. This is real. Like, this is, this is real in my mind. We finally get home, and we can't go anywhere. Like, don't, don't go anywhere. Of course, I wouldn't. It took us an hour and a half to drive what should have taken us 20 minutes. Does that make sense with me on this with all the guns and get out of the car, hands up, frisking kind of stuff at every place that you stop? This is what happened. And finally, we get to our house. Well, not our house, the Cox's house. We live in Kajabi. And we stay there. Nothing's open. We have no money. We have no food because there's like TV dinners and heated up and instant this, that, and the other. Has it been invented yet in Kenya in 1982? And so when I say there's no food, there's no food. But throughout the week and a half or two weeks that we hunkered down in the Cox's house, we never went hungry. The Lord always provided. Someone came and brought us milk one day. Someone came and maybe a few hours later and gave us some eggs and someone else gave us some flour and I mean, just, and we put it together and I never missed a meal. Now I know that's not anywhere close to I'm boiling my baby. I understand this. 
But that, for me, at that point, was the goodness of the Lord. That was the difficult situation that both of us found ourselves in, and God took it upon Himself to feed us so that we weren't hungry. Does that make sense? With me on this? There was no disbelief. There was no unbelief. There was a lot of prayer because there was nothing that we were going to do to go out and get food. Nothing. We couldn't do anything. And the Lord said, I got you. This is kind of the goodness of the Lord and what it is maybe in your life too. Fast forward. So I think 2005, 2010, I'm with my church. I take people over to foreign countries and we do mission trips. And um, one of those mission trips, I ended the year on Friday. So I'm a, I was a teacher at this point. So public school. Ended the year on Friday. On Saturday, we get on a plane. We go down to Miami. Uh, I wait in Miami. And then at 10 o'clock, we board, we were supposed to board Air Lusso Airlines and fly to Bolivia. This is, this is the trip, right? Does that make sense? I get down there. The plane is packed. I think it is World Cup time or something like this. So everybody is going to South America. Do you with me on this? Like everybody. They've overbooked the plane by 25 people. I get a, you're going to fly standby. I was like, whoa, 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 what am I flying standby? So I watch my team, 30 of them, along with a couple of leaders, get on the plane and they're going to fly to Bolivia. I'm standby, and obviously there's about 30 of us over here, and so I'm probably not going to get on that plane. Well, I pray, we're all praying that I would get on the plane. It doesn't happen. Then I am standing there at the glass watching the plane push back from the airport, and it's going to take off, and I have a very serious, deep conversation with Jesus, and it goes something like this. You realize, God, I don't ask a lot of things, but I want you to know that this plane cannot blow up. These people cannot fall out of the sky. Right. I probably not that I'm telling you, God, what to do, but I don't know if I can go back to church with everybody dead except me. That can't happen. Right. So if you want to kill me on the next flight, I'm, I'm not really fine with that. But that would be rather of, of the two evils. That's the one I'm choosing. They take all fly away. They arrive safely. Nothing bad or whatever. The next flight that leaves is two days later. I'm in Miami. They put me up in a hotel. I come back to the to the airport and look around and see if I can get out of Miami today. It doesn't happen. Go back, sleep at the hotel, get up. And I have no guarantee that I'm going to get on that flight at night because I would stand by the first day. There's no guarantee I'll get on the flight. Okay. It's not an American airline. We're, we're flying a Bolivian airline and it's sort of a crapshoot as to whether you do or don't get on the plane. Does that make sense? They don't follow the rules of the United States. Anyway, so... <clears throat> I get up and I'm sort of at peace because I don't know. Because my thing is, is, and this is the only thing that I'm out losing. I'm losing pride. Because if I don't make this flight, probably the best thing for me to do is find a flight back home. Then it's, I've got to look at everyone's faces. Why weren't you allowed to go on the mission trip? What does God think about you kind of stuff? So all we're talking about is damaged pride. That's it. We're not talking about boiling anybody's kid. No one's dying. Does that make sense? But it was big for me. Wake up in the morning, second day. I run to this guy. I'm one of these people that talks to anybody about anything and tells them my life story within five seconds of me meeting them. I don't know if you know any of these people. I don't know if you know those people. I don't even know if you're one of these people, but I am one of these people. And so there's a guy there and I talk to him and he tells me he's from Bolivia. And I'm like, no way I'm going there. to. Well, theoretically, I'm flying there tonight. He's like, so am I. Oh my gosh. And so then I tell him everything that I just told you, minus the praying and can't die stuff to him. And he's like, you need to go to the Air Lesseur corporate headquarters here in Miami. And I'm thinking that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. 
I don't know where they are. It's Miami. How big is Miami? I have no, I have no transportation. This is before Uber, people. This is for all that other, you know, share ride mess. That's not there. And so he finally says, no, you need to walk there. I'm like, sure, I should walk there. I think he catches the sarcasm in my voice and says, no, really, it's like right there. And he points across through the glass, across the parking lot. And I'm like, the only thing there is the backside of a strip mall. And he's like, it's on the other side of the strip mall. I was like, can you watch my stuff? I was off. Go in there, give them my passport and say, I'm Jonathan Wilburn. Can you, can I get a boarding pass? They're like, no, we can't print a boarding pass here. It's at the, at the airport, but we can assign you a seat. Let's assign me a seat. So I pick my seat, you know, 54A or something like this. And I leave and I'm feeling pretty good. And the guy says, hey, you want to go out to eat? (laughs) Yeah. Hello. So we put my stuff in the back of the car. I don't know this guy. I've never met him before in my life until, what, five minutes ago. We go out. We, he does some errands. We go eat at, like, Sonny's Barbecue, which is fabulous, by the way. And um, he pays for it, doesn't allow me to pay for anything, takes me back to the hotel. I say, hey, man, well, he's got to go do something. So we part ways, and I go, and the plane leaves at 10. You've got to be there two hours or three hours ahead of time. I get there at 5. I'm five hours before the flight leaves. I'm on the front line. Finally, they, we're waiting there forever. Finally, they come. We get up there. I'm at the, I'm first in line, by the way. First in line. So I get up to the front and I'm trying to get them to print me a boarding pass. Desperately want a boarding pass because I want to go home. Remember my pride. And so the guy next to me who's in the gold diamond line, you know what I mean? Like the first class gold diamond people, they're right beside me or whatever. This guy is the Bolivian equivalent of me who is loud, will talk to anybody and is everyone's best friend. And so he swears that he knows me. He's like, I know you. I'm like, I don't know who you are. And he said, no, 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 have you? And he starts rattling all this stuff up. Finally, I'm like, sure, yeah, we know each other kind of stuff. And so we're talking and whatever's happening. And I understand, he keeps on introducing me to people as Jonathan, his friend. This is my friend, Jonathan. I'm like, yeah, how are you doing? And so as I'm trying to talk here and I, he keeps on introducing me, so I'm talking to someone else and he'll hit me in the arm and he'll be like, I'm Jonathan Wilbur and his friend. Yes, how are you doing? You know, and that's what I did the whole time. The whole time. It dawns on me that I've done this for about eight times and I've entered, he's introduced me to everybody behind the counter. Everybody behind the counter is introduced. I know them. Well, at least I met them. I don't know what their names are. I read the name. But anyway, so my friend, this guy told him this is what's going on. So further on the conversation, I say to them, look, when I get to Bolivia, I'm going to Santa Cruz. And in Santa Cruz, I've got an hour and a half layover. So I have to get off the plane, get my bags, go through customs, buy a uh, visa, run to the domestic terminal, check my bag, get a boarding pass, run through TSA security, go, their version, go to the the boarding place, give them my ticket and get on in an hour and a half hour and a half to do all that. I can just tell you, you need three hours to do all that. So I prime the pump because I know in my back of my mind, I'm getting left in Santa Cruz. It's not going to happen. I'm not making the flight. So I tell the woman across the counter, can you please hold the plane for me? I got to do, and I explain everything I got to do. I, I need you to hold the plane for me. My friend says, you'll make the plane. Really? So I asked the $64 million question. Tried not to be rude, but it came out rude, I'm sure. Who are you? And he pulls back his jacket, and on his shirt is a pen that says, and it's got his name, and it says, Chairman of the Board of Air Lesseur Airlines. 
we're friends now. I was like, I remember you. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> and so, uh, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. And so then it clicks and dawns on me. That's why he introduced me to everybody in the line because this guy's the big cheese, right? He's the top dog standing right here beside me. And he thinks he knows me again. I have no idea who that guy is, but whatever. Now we're best friends. He's the chairman of the board. I was like, can I get first class? I, mean, I didn't say that. I didn't say it. Anyway, so I get on the plane and sit back in the economy with the rest of the peasants. And we, we fly, he's in first class, and we fly to Santa Cruz. And so I do my whole thing. That whole thing I did, I did it. I get on the plane, and there's nobody at the gate. And I'm waiting for them to shut the door in my face and say, oh, sorry, too late. You know, I get there in about two hours and 15, two hours and 10 minutes. They should have left 40 minutes ago. In America, they'd have left 40 minutes ago. Anyway, whatever. So I fly on the plane. I get there and I'm like, oh my gosh, I made it. I couldn't believe I made it. And I look out of the corner of my eye and here, sitting right here as I walk in at a bulkhead, is my friend, Mr. Chairman of the board here, is talking to the pilot. He sees me, looks at the pilot and says, we can go now. The pilot leaves, goes to the front of the plane. We push off. They close the door. I'm like, this guy was for real. And I go and sit down again where the peasants are in the back. And I land in Bolivia. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm telling you this story now about the goodness of the Lord. But when it dawned, when it, when all this was happening, I didn't get that this was the goodness of the Lord. I had to tell my friends when they said, how's Miami? We kind of reared the thing. And someone offhanded comment, man, God's good to you. And it click, it, you needed two days off because you ended school and started a mission trip back to back with no rest or downtime. There's no way I would have made it through the mission trip like that. And then the Lord gives me a guy I can go to barbecue, which I love barbecue. And he gives me Mr. Chairman of the board to make sure I make it on the flight and introduces me to everybody. All that stuff's extra we found out the reason that I got bumped off that plane is because my ticket cost half the price of everybody else's ticket. And they thought, we'll bump him because we have to refund the ticket. It's only, let's say, 500 bucks instead of 1000 We bought those tickets in January. The goodness of the Lord, the Lord knew I, need a, knew I needed a break down here way back in January. And you know what's crazy is he didn't let me know this is what's going to happen. He didn't say, by the way, you're going to get left in Miami, and this is why that's happening. I'm sitting there reeling about why are you doing this, God? What's going on? He's like, just rest. I got it. Wait on me. I got it. And a lot of times that's not what we do, is it? We're sacrificing our baby trying to eat it when he's saying, I need you just to chill out and rest. So let me just be honest with you. You've got two choices when you walk out of here. Some of you are in difficult situations right now. Some of you are in worse situations than other people. Some people don't even know you're in a bad situation. Some people, everybody knows you're in a bad situation. But you have two choices. You can wait upon the Lord and trust in God. Or you can boil your baby and eat it. That's pretty much the decision that you got when you walk out of here. And everything that you do in the difficult situations that you find yourself in, the question you have every single time is, are you going to try to get what you want in your own power, or are you going to wait on the Lord? That's pretty much it. So we end with waiting on the Lord. That is Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. I think it's pretty popular, right? 
Did you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrupable. He, dr- he gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The choice is easy. Well, the choice is simple. It's not easy. The choice is simple. Are you going to do it on your own way? Are you going to try to find satisfaction or fulfill your need or desire in your own power? Or are you going to trust and wait upon the Lord? That's pretty much the two choices that you have. And I leave that with you. And I challenge you to wait on the goodness of the Lord because there's nothing like the goodness of the Lord. Thank you. hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.